1: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love.
2: Mr. Speaker, I can think of no action the House can take. that's more likely to further divide the American
1: people than the action we are contemplating today. Impeachment. It's meant to be a -a once-in-a-century event, For the best part of 200 years, it only ever happened once in the middle of the 19th century with Andrew Johnson. Then it happened again with Bill Clinton, and that was sort of it. Um, Two in 200 years. But on Wednesday night, another bit of history was made because the House of Representatives voted to make Donald Trump the first president in American history to be impeached not once but twice. The difference this time is it wasn't just Democrats on their own in the House of Representatives. Several Republicans crossed the floor, as it were, to vote with them and, in effect, to prosecute, to charge Donald Trump with the high crimes and misdemeanours that count as impeachable offences. And so it now moves over to the Senate for a trial, again, the second time in basically a year that that's happened. How will it work? What are the rules? What are the potential punishments that could be meted out to Donald Trump? For all those questions, I wanted to talk to the World Authority on Impeachment. And that man is Noah Feldman. He's a law professor at Harvard University. He presents the Deep Background podcast. And he really has written hugely and extensively about impeachment. Indeed, he was the Democrats' first witness when they impeached Donald Trump the first time. And the very first question I wanted to put to him was, given that Donald Trump is due to leave office anyway on January the 20th and there now needs to be a trial, is there time for that process to happen before Donald Trump is due to leave the White House for the last time?
2: There is time if the Senate wishes to hold a trial even under rather compressed circumstances in the next week. As you'll recall from the last uh, impeachment trial that we had just about a year ago, the Senate actually didn't entertain any witnesses. So the question is simply then time for arguments to be presented and time for the vote to occur. So it could in theory be done rather quickly. If however, it's not done, that does not necessarily mean that the impeachment trial is over because impeachment includes in this instance, two components, one removing the president from office that would be moot the minute he was out of office. But second, a separate matter of whether Trump should be blocked from ever running for office again, that would remain alive, even if he were subsequently uh, finished being president for this time. And so that would still be something that the Senate might find itself debating and voting on after Trump leaves the presidency.
1: So that that notion of it being an additional thing is the thing I'm interested in, which is if there's a conviction, is it automatic that he is, let's say this is after January the 20th, is it automatic that Donald Trump is then barred from even running for office again, let alone holding office? Or do the same group of senators who voted up or down on conviction, guilty or not guilty, have to go in and vote, a, you know, as it were, a second time, a second vote to make that decision on barring him from holding office?
2: The latter. First, he would have to be convicted by the Senate of the high crimes and misdemeanors. Then, in a separate vote, the senators would vote on whether to bar him from office. There is some procedural reason to believe that that second vote would only require a majority of the senators present rather than the two-thirds majority that would be required for conviction. But conviction would be required as a condition of subsequently barring him from office. So in effect, the two-thirds number is the one you want to focus on.
1: So 67 senators needed really for that first round, but then afterwards, yes, you maybe get there with, I suppose, 50 and a tie-breaking vote from Kamala Harris.
2: You could indeed have that. The reality, of course, though, is that those senators who were voting on the initial conviction would probably not convict him if they thought that an inevitable result was uh, ultimately for him to be barred from office. And so Although in principle, what you're saying is true in practice, it's likely not to be that way.
1: And then I know there's a whole lot of, in a way, pious rhetoric about you know, from senators that they say, now I'm a, a, a juror in this trial and therefore I must keep my counsel and mustn't talk like a politician. But how political is a vote in an impeachment trial? Are they really jurors or are, will this be in? British parliamentary terms, a whipped vote? Will Mitch McConnell tell his Republicans how to vote? And yes, there may be some rebellions, but this will run on party lines. How non-partisan is that judgment?
2: I think the jury analogy holds for some points, but not for others. They're not jurors in the sense that they're not sequestered. Their statement that they don't want to discuss their viewpoints is just a matter of political rhetoric. There would be no disqualification if they did discuss their views. They're under no obligation to keep an open mind. Um, After all, they are elected politicians, and uh, if they have a mind at all, we should be thrilled. And if it is open, that's that's just an extra bonus. (laughs) That said, they are sitting in judgment, and it is often said in the old analyses of impeachment that the lower house acts as the prosecutor and specifies what is in effect an indictment, and the upper house acts as the jury. And this is rhetoric that goes uh, back to the House of Lords when it used to hear impeachments. So in the sense that they're sitting in judgment, they are a jury. It will probably not be a whipped vote in the Senate. I think Mitch McConnell has already signaled uh, through leaks that he is, in fact, open to an impeachment going forward in some way, which is not the same thing as saying that he would vote to to convict the president. And I think it would not be probably possible from a political standpoint to make this whipped. Even in the last impeachment vote, which came very close to being a party line vote, one Senator, uh, Mitt Romney, did deviate and he did vote to convict the president on one of the two charges.
1: Now, you just mentioned the first impeachment, and I mentioned at the top that you were the very first expert witness called by the Democrats uh, in that one. And I remember there was huge discussion, and you were a big part of it, about what counted as a high crime and misdemeanor, you know, whether even these were two separate categories, there's high crimes and there's misdemeanors, or does the phrase run together? And it was, you know, a lot of abstract sort of almost theological discussion about that. And the case itself was quite complicated about the whether or not Donald Trump had abused his office in leaning on the leader's uh, leader of Ukraine to dig up political dirt on Joe Biden, this time it seems much more straightforward. But just talk us through why, beyond just to the naked eye looking awful, the scenes of Donald Trump, you know, whipping up his supporters and then them going marching down Pennsylvania Avenue and storming Capitol Hill. But why? If it does, does it rise to the level of an impeachable offence, namely a high crime and misdemeanor?
2: The impeachable offence here, as framed by the House of Representatives, is incitement to insurrection. And that language sounds very severe, but that reflects a reality that was fairly severe in its own right. The theory of the article of impeachment is that the president incited, whipped up the crowd to engage in insurrection defined as the attempt to interfere with the operation's of the government or indeed overthrow the ordinary operation of the government by force. And that's based on the idea that at least some of the people who stormed the Capitol were armed and acted using force and that their intent was not merely to temporarily interrupt the proceedings, but actually to stop Joe Biden from being declared president by the joint houses of of Congress and to facilitate Donald Trump remaining president. So that's the theory uh, there and it's supported by the evidence Of Trump saying at that very rally, I was elected in a landslide. We must fight. You must fight. We must not fight with one hand tied behind our back. I think I'm saying it a little better than he said it. Um, And so the theory of the article of impeachment is that that amounts to inciting an effort actually to, in some sense, overthrow the government. If I were to translate that into more ordinary language, what I would say is you have a president here who has abused the power of his office to try to break the democratic process. And that process of interrupting the democratic process just culminated in his encouraging people to come from all over the country to protest at the Capitol, what he called explicitly the stealing of the election. And because the election was not, in fact, stolen, and because the crowd at his urging then did enter the Capitol, that amounts to, to my mind, the high crime and misdemeanor of interfering with the democratic process. It's rather basic.
1: I see. So, in his attempt, one of Trump's lawyers was was uh, on the air a day or two ago, saying, "Look, obviously, he deplores, you know, shaking his head in in in, in sort of shocked um, abhorrence the events on Capitol Hill." But it's very difficult, he argued, to prove that Donald Trump incited them because when he was speaking, about, and you quoted some of it about showing strength and you never achieve anything through weakness and so on, he, of course, meant it metaphorically. He was talking about showing political strength. All he meant were for his supporters to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and stage a demonstration. And that, of course, is within the rules under the First Amendment. They were just exercising their right of free speech. He, d- In other words, how important is it to tie Donald Trump and his actions and rhetoric to the actions of the stormers of Capitol Hill, those people who did riot. And I suppose underneath that is a question about intent. Is it important that prosecutors prove that Donald Trump intended them to storm Capitol Hill, intended them to kill police officers, intended them to do what they were doing violently rather than simply to express themselves politically?
2: for purposes of impeachment, there's no technical requirement to prove intent. It is certainly the case in the way that the article of impeachment is drawn up that it says, and accuses Trump, of knowingly, willfully, and intentionally trying to produce this result. But this is not like an incitement trial in federal court for the crime of incitement, which would require proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the president had indeed intended to incite the crowd and that his conduct was reasonably likely to incite the crowd to imminent violence. That would be the requirement in a criminal trial. Here in the impeachment trial, all that's required is for Congress to believe and for the senators to to agree that the president did knowingly and intentionally incite the crowd to, to insurrection. And again, the proof of that could be derived uh, from his words and from his conduct and from its consequences. And this will never go before court. You know, these these matters are ultimately judged and determined by Congress. It's up to Congress to decide what counts as an impeachment and what's an impeachable offence and up to Congress to vote on it and that it's Congress's word is final.
1: And I remember one of the things you explained uh, a year or so ago was that in some ways, the burden of proof is both higher and lower in a in an impeachment process in other words there are actions that might not count as crimes in a regular courtroom but nevertheless would be impeachable and similarly things that might be impeachable um, or, or not impeachable that would count as crimes outside
2: yes I think both of those things are, are true because the point is that a high crime and misdemeanor what makes it high is that it is connected to politics it's connected to the president's office. As the president, so the president could commit a, even a relatively bad crime in his personal capacity, and that would not necessarily be a ground for impeachment. Uh, similarly, the president could commit an act which might not be a crime, such as in these instances. In this instance, inciting the crowd, uh, undermining democracy, pressure using his office to pressure a foreign leader to impugn his rival. Those might or might not be convictable as crimes. But they certainly are high crimes in the sense that they are abuses of office to subvert the system.
0: We will never give up. We will never concede.
1: It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved.
2: And you know, Jonathan, if I could just mention one other point. You you were talking about the the defense of Trump that some will raise that he never actually said the words, you know, violate the law, enter the Capitol. And here I just want to mention what's always used in incitement as the, the example, the classical example in both senses of the term, of a speech that never says in sight, but does in And that's Mark Antony's famous Friends, Romans, Countrymen, Lend Me Your Ears speech in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. In that speech, as you'll recall, Mark Antony never literally says the words, hey mob, rise up and you know overthrow the government. And sure. in fact, he's promised that he won't say anything negative about the conspirators who have killed Julius Caesar, and yet, the communication to the cr- crowd, and to the mob, in the play is to rise up, and that's a version of what Trump really did here.
1: Right, and so it wouldn't be enough simply person made speech, crowd did violence. You have there would have to be some connection between the speech, even if it isn't as you say so direct that he's literally saying you know storm in there, but just that there is a you know a lot. It was reasonable to believe that the crowd would take from his words the action, the the cue for the actions they did, in fact, commit.
2: Yeah, reasonable to believe is as good a legal standard as any, you know, what a reasonable person think this. But I agree, there must be some, in incitement, there must be some causal connection between the speech being given and then the conduct of the crowd.
1: And then how the, 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 there's two other bits of this that I'm, I don't know if House prosecutors will try and press this in the Senate. But there's two other pieces of this that I think are interesting. One is his actions afterwards and there is a whole lot of reporting and dispute actually about whether or not he acted quickly enough to defend the capital and this 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 reporting that's out there about him delaying agreeing to send in the national guard and then secondly this notion of remorse and you know that he did do this sort of contrite slightly hostage video statement, uh, you know, hours later or the next day where he appeared to say, you know, OK, now time for healing and getting on. And people said, ah, oh, he's doing that to fend off prosecution, to show that, look, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm behaving. And I wondered from your point of view, how much either of those things count. Are they, you know, germane to this case to say, look, he didn't try and stop the violence by sending the National Guard. And did he show contrition?
2: They are germane insofar as they shed light on what his intent was when he was talking to the crowd. If there's circumstantial evidence that emerges, as there may well be, that suggests that he was excited that the crowd went in, that he was not eager to call in the National Guard, and he seems to have been on both sides of that question in his subsequent attempts to make sense of it, if we find out more about that, that could be indicative of his intent when he was actually speaking. And the same is true for any remorse later, you know? I mean, his critics will say, well, he didn't mean that, he was covering himself. And he will say, no, I never wanted there to be any violence. And similarly, when he said to them, go home, you know, he said, he said to the crowd, go home and follow the law. But in the very same speech, he said, we love you and you're very special people. to so the people who were in the process of ransacking the Capitol and threatening the lives of members of Congress. So that too, I think will be parsed and each part of the speech can be used to support one view of the president's conduct.
1: Um, This is maybe a little political question, but I wonder, the the House Republicans who join Democrats to vote for impeachment, does that have any extra force? Uh, I I don't quite want to say legally, because the the, the law and the politics combine in these cases, but does it make the the, the prosecution case that much stronger that it didn't only go on party partisan lines uh, in the House of Representatives?
2: It has major political significance. You know, Liz Cheney, who was the third highest ranking Republican in the House, uh, daughter of the former Vice President Dick Cheney, publicly announced even before the vote that she was going to vote for impeachment. And, you know, that has real moral suasion. She's very conservative. And I hope and trust that if this does go to trial in the Senate, as it probably will, that there will be Republicans who will vote for impeachment. I mean, in a perfect world, there would be enough actually to to remove the president but even if that's not the case i really hope that there will be enough republicans prepared to express that moral judgment and that i think that will resonate
1: interesting you attach an if there is there a chance
2: this does not go to the senate there is a small chance you know at an earlier stage of this process one of the things that democratic leadership was discussing in the house of representatives was passing an article of impeachment but then not sending it over to the senate which is what is required to trigger the trial as you'll recall, that was also a strategic judgment that was used for some period of time, for some weeks in the last impeachment. And there was actually some discussion of whether it was worth sending the articles of impeachment over to the Senate at all, given that they were very confident that they weren't going to be uh, ultimately lead to the removal of the president.
1: Sure. But you as a rule of law guy, you would want it to go to the Senate, surely?
2: Well, my view would be that if it did not go to the Senate, it would not go down in the record books as an impeachment. Um, And yes, I think that if a Indictment is made, the appropriate thing to do is then to bring it to trial so that it can be tried. Yes, I think that's a basic principle of rule of law. If you charge someone with a crime or a high crime, you ought to give that person an opportunity to defend himself. And the Senate trial is the place for the president to defend himself. <laughs>
1: So let's just, in our closing minutes, just rattle through some of the scenarios in which um, there isn't a conviction and what other options are available. There, there, there was some floating of in the House, but it could happen in the Senate as well, of a motion of censure uh, where you sort of condemn the president. And I, I think that's how the outcome in the Clinton case, where he was censured by the Senate, you know, a very firm slap on the wrist. It feels insufficient, given what actually happened on Capitol Hill last weak. But is
2: that your view too? Censure would be purely symbolic. It might be better than nothing. And had that been what Congress started with, had they said, you know, we're going to censure the president and in a resolution begun by saying, whereas we don't have very much time to do impeachment, so we're just going to do censure, that might have been significant enough. But a political judgment was made, and these are political judgments by the Democrats to go forward with with an impeachment process. And I think now it would seem like half a loaf and
1: you couldn't do censure but we're also going to bar him from office that wouldn't work
2: no under the constitution the impeachment provision can only lead to exclusion from office on conviction now there is one other possibility this is your i think your
1: thought about once he has left office Uh, and he's an ex-president, the notion of the charge of incitement could be pursued because of a provision in, and I think, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Tell me if I'm wrong.
2: You're right. So the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is one of the amendments enacted in the aftermath of the American Civil War. Uh, There was the 13th barring slavery, the 14th extending equal protection of the laws and due process to all citizens, and the 15th giving African-American men at the time the right to vote. In that 14th amendment, there is a provision, never much discussed or thought about, section three of the 14th amendment. This provision says that if someone has taken the oath of office to uphold the constitution and subsequently engages in insurrection, then that person shall be forever barred from holding any office under the United States. Now, if the presidency is an office under the United States, and it seems probably certain that it is, And if the person has taken an oath previously, which Donald Trump has done, then if he's engaged, quote, in insurrection, then he can't hold office again in the future. That means it will be up ultimately to a court, not to Congress or anybody else, to decide if Trump engaged in insurrection. And engaged in is not defined in the Constitution, and insurrection is not defined in the Constitution. So you can imagine what the debate would be about. Would a court say so? That's a closer question, and it it lies in our future.
1: But who would have to bring that? I mean, that's not like a civil thing. Would it, That would be the who? The Department of Justice would open up a sort of file against him and knock on his door one morning and say you're under arrest for under the 14th Amendment for inciting insurrection. How
2: does that work? I don't think it would be the latter because the provision doesn't say that it's a crime. It just says you can't serve a term in office. So there are several ways it could come to court. One would be Donald Trump registers for the 2024 primary in, I don't know, the state of Massachusetts where I live, which is a liberal state. And the Secretary of State says, we won't register you because I have determined that you engage in insurrection. Then Donald Trump would go to court and a court would then have to decide whether the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, who refused to put him on the ballot, acted validly or did not act validly. So that would be one way it could come to court. Um, Another way it could come to court would be if an opponent in, say, the primary said, listen, my interests are being harmed by Donald Trump running for office because he's stealing votes from me. And when he can't be president, so he's not a valid candidate. So you have to imagine is similar to, you know, the Constitution says you have to be 35 years old to be president. Imagine a 32-year-old ran for the presidency. What would be the constitutional provision for blocking that person? Well, whatever that provision would be would be the same kind of mechanism that would be used in the case of someone running for office who was otherwise disqualified, for example, by having engaged in insurrection against the United States.
1: Oh, so that is a scenario also that, I mean, you know, everything else with Donald Trump has played out. Everything possible that could come has come. So I'm going to hold you to that. That may well be in our future. Let me just ask you to take one step back from the whole from the legal business and just sort of the big picture about impeachment and two concerns that people might have the first would be that people recoiled in 2016 at Donald Trump's use of the slogan lock her up about Hillary Clinton and said that's not a that's a sign of uh, of a of a sort of banana republic when p- politicians jail their opponents is there any queasiness obviously it wouldn't be jail but the idea of an incoming administration one of its first acts would be to oversee not itself involved in obviously but to see the you know legal action taken against the previous president there's something about that that may leave some people being queasy and then i suppose the concern that impeachment twice in one term three times in 20 years that somehow it becomes a bit debased and that if the republicans ever take the house they will just find a reason To impeach Joe Biden just to keep the score even, and that you get into a kind of tit for tat uh, with what was meant to be a once in a century type provision, it becomes routine.
2: There's always a risk, as you say, in a democracy, that if you break unwritten norms, then the other side can break them as well. I don't think this counts as likely to produce that sort of result. I think. If anything, that was an argument that could've been made about the last impeachment, although Trump's conduct was so egregious and it was on that, you know, on that transcript of the telephone call that I ultimately thought that it wasn't gonna to lead to an attempt to dream up a way to impeach, uh, to impeach Joe Biden. And this conduct is so outlying in US history, it's just so remarkable that I don't think that the tit-for-tat problem is really posed under these circumstances.
1: We should point out that after my conversation with Noah Feldman, the White House released a video of Donald Trump condemning the violence of last week's riots. Violence and vandalism have absolutely no place in our country and no place in our movement. Making America great again has always been about defending the rule of law. Interestingly, he didn't mention impeachment anywhere in that video. Uh, no, if I'm always on this podcast, we ask a what else question. Uh, we're not going to get you to stray about something else going on in the news because law is your field. But our what else will be these this raft of legal appointments and t- Department of Justice appointments that Joe Biden has made. Merrick Garland is his choice for attorney general. What does the legal community, people like you, make of the choices Joe Biden has made?
2: The legal community broadly has an extremely positive view of Merrick Garland, justifiably so in my view. He had a distinguished career in the Department of Justice before becoming a federal judge. He's then spent close to 20 years as a federal judge, actually a bit more, and he's got a reputation as being fair, straightforward, moderate. He enjoys the kind of universal respect that makes people think that he is the man to begin to restore some credibility to a Department of Justice that's been very badly harmed in its reputation in the in the Bill Barr era. So I and others are pretty enthusiastic about about that choice and then um, the people who will be working alongside garland some of which some of whom have been announced also seem to be on the whole comparably comparably excellent
1: noah feldman harvard law professor host of the deep background podcast thanks so much for joining
2: me on such a historic occasion it's my uh, i would say pleasure but i suppose it's more an obligation it's a pleasure to speak to you and i'm sorry for the occasion for it And you
1: can hear more of Noah Feldman on his podcast, Deep Background, a weekly interview podcast from Pushkin Industries that examines the historical, scientific, legal and cultural context behind the biggest stories in the news. And that is it for this week. But make sure to listen in next week when we'll cover what is set to be one of the most important days in the US politics calendar, its inauguration day. Donald Trump won't be there, but hundreds of security and police officers certainly will be as they try to repair the damage done last week with the Capitol Hill riots as they protect Congress and everyone else who turns up for the moment when Joe Biden takes the oath of office that makes him president. It promises to be an historic day, however it plays out. If you're interested in some different news from the United States, do listen to Friday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, where the team are looking at Donald Trump's relationship with capital punishment. But for now, it's goodbye from me. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please do stay safe and as always, thanks for listening.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com/podcasts.